Welcome to the Woman-Centered Health Podcast. I am Dr. Nicole Lowe, and with me is Dr. Stephanie Edmonds. We are both PhD-prepared nurses and the founders of Woman-Centered Health. Join us as we talk with health professionals and researchers who can help you improve your communication with patients about sexual and reproductive health. Please visit our website to learn more and connect with us on social media by going to www.womancenteredhealth.com. everybody and welcome to WChat. Today we're interviewing Dr. Christine Dellendorf regarding her research on decision making and contraceptive counseling. So Stephanie and I also wanted to just take another minute to talk about how you can support us and keep us recording and talk a little bit more about our Patreon page. So Patreon is an online platform that allows podcasters and other content creators to create a following and have what is called patrons support them by pledging a certain amount of money per month to help them keep creating content. And so we realized that we talk about Patreon without maybe really talking about what benefits to you or talking about our show notes a little bit more. So just kind of a brief overview, when you find our Patreon page, which is www.patreon.com slash WCH, you can find that we have a couple different tiers. And for as little as five bucks a month, you can support our show. And with that, you get a guide with a bonus clinic feature. And then you also get a copy of our show notes. In our show notes we actually spend a lot of time on sometimes most times we don't have them done when we do release the podcast but we do get them out we like to make sure that they go through a rigorous editing process and it is a pdf file that has all the links that we talk about an overview of the entire episode communication tips practice tips or anything else that's relevant to that information and then for ten dollars a month you can get access to our notes and then also the really cool thing is we let you know who we're going to be interviewing and you can actually submit questions in advance that we'll ask on the show while we're recording. We do also have other tiers available, but we just want to talk a little bit about how really for a small nominal fee, again, $5, $10 a month that you can support us and help us keep recording because we love this podcast and we hope that you do too. We'd like to give our listeners a brief background about our guests. So we would like you to talk a little bit about yourself. Could you please tell our listeners about your background, specifically your education and training and your current practice setting, like where you practice and what type of patients you serve? And because you are a researcher, a little bit about your research. Great. Thanks so much. It's a pleasure to be here. So I am a family physician. I am a faculty member at the University of California, San Francisco, but my clinical and research home base is actually Zuckerberg San Francisco General Hospital, the county hospital. And I very much, I trained in the safety net setting, and this is very much my home academically and otherwise. So I did my family medicine residency here, and then I did a family planning fellowship here at UCSF as well where I got a master's in clinical research at UCSF and also got training in clinical and research methods around family planning, working with Dr. Phil Darney and Dr. Jody Steinauer. So since then, I have been on faculty here doing both clinical care in primary care and family planning settings and research, doing research related to women's needs, values, and preferences around contraceptive and family planning care more broadly with a focus on the needs of low-income and diverse communities. And I continue to provide primary care to a panel of patients that I've been seeing now for over 16 years at the Family Health Center at San Francisco General and also provide care at Planned Parenthood as well. The other question we like to ask all of our guests is what informs your perspective or practice? So why do you do what you do and what's most valuable to you? I love that question. I think it's so important. So I went into medicine initially because I believe that healthcare providers are in a important place and have important opportunities to advance individuals' health, but also to inform in general how society and healthcare systems think about what health is and what it means to people and how we can best lift everybody up to be healthiest and live the best possible lives that they can. And I chose family medicine for that reason, because I think family medicine is a specialty that's very much grounded in community, 
and in equity. So then I now take that into my current work by trying to bring that perspective around the role of medicine and family medicine specifically in elevating the voices of patients and communities that are often not heard in order to make sure that we do a better job of allowing people to achieve their potential and to achieve equity and health outcomes. And I think that family medicine provides a really important perspective for me when I do this work. When I trained in family medicine, we did a lot of thinking about health communication, about how to break down the paternalism of medicine that's often there, and also a lot about health equity. And that was really a health disparities and health care disparities was a big part of my training at San Francisco General Hospital. And so then when I narrowed my focus and research to family planning, it was natural for me to apply those perspectives to the work that I do. So I just want to say that I was talking to Nicole prior to <laughs> you getting on, but I was like very excited to talk with you because I think I've read most of your papers. <laughs> and also, I think the papers that you've written with you and other people, your co-authors, like have really inspired at least myself into this podcast and why health communication is so important, especially regarding reproductive and sexual health with women. And I know our many of our other guests have mentioned you as well. So you're definitely an inspiration, I think, to many uh, health providers. Thank you so much. Stephanie was super nerding out about this. <laughs> she is very excited. <laughs> yeah. I'm excited to be here. <laughs> All right. So like we said, we're going to discuss Dr. Dellendorf's research and her practice with quality family planning and shared decision-making contraceptive counseling. So let's just jump right in. So you are the director of the Women-Centered Contraception Program at UCSF. And we obviously love that term women-centered. Can you explain what women-centered means to you as um, director of the program? Yeah, so this is a term we are always actively thinking about and unpacking, and I know you all think about it a lot too. So I think where it started from is a recognition that if you look historically at how family planning, family planning research, family planning practice, family planning service delivery how it's often been conceptualized, it hasn't been conceptualized from the perspective of the people who are receiving the services. It's been conceptualized from the perspective of public health outcomes, obviously back in the dark ages from the perspective of population control and thinking about it from a population control perspective through the limiting the reproduction of individuals. But even now when we've moved past that population control perspective, there's still this public health frame that so often gets applied to when we think about family planning. How can we improve poverty through influencing women's individual reproductive health care decisions, which implies that women's reproduction is the problem that leads to poverty, which obviously stems from not having a structural analysis of these things. How can we prevent unintended pregnancy, which is the term intention and the focus on unintended pregnancy never came out of actually talking to women about what value, what's important to them about family planning outcomes. How can we get more women to use IUDs and implants as a goal to prevent unintended pregnancy? It's all structured around these public health priorities, which are adjacent to and often overlapping with things that women care about, but that's not why they're selected. That's not where they come from. And so we really wanted as a team to make it explicit that we thought the ethical goal of family planning and family planning research and family planning service delivery should be around centering women and people in what the questions that we ask and how we ask them and what the and how we interpret the results. And importantly, as I said before, we also feel very strongly that we need to focus on the needs of the people of particularly whose needs and preferences are most often neglected and whose reproduction is most often undervalued and whose preferences around reproduction are most often undervalued. So to use the kind of jargony term centering at the margins, but that's how we think of it is how do we center our conversations about reproduction and especially reproduction 
of women of color, of low-income women, how do we center it on them as opposed to these public health goals? I will say that we are actively as a team currently struggling with the term women-centered in order to try to be as inclusive as possible as we think about taking care of trans patients. We specifically didn't choose the term patient because we want to take care of people not just when they're in front of us as like taking the role of patients. We want people to be people in the world. And that means taking care of women and people when they're not patients and recognizing they have needs and preferences when they're not currently in front of us. So we haven't finalized a new title, but we are working on it. And we think it'll have some variation of person-centeredness as our kind of new frame for thinking about this. I still think women are an, is an important term to use. But I think in order to be inclusive, it's important also to move towards the concept of, in general, being person-centered. One, I would just love to just be at your center and just listen to your guys' conversations. <laughs> yeah. That was amazing. And two, you know, it's funny you mentioned the how women-centered and how you kind of feel ambivalent about that term. Stephanie and I actually had a lot of discussions about that and if that was appropriate or were we excluding people when we really wanted to be inclusive. And so that's certainly something that we've talked a lot about. And I don't remember, I don't know, Stephanie, if you remember who we were talking about and they're like, you know, women-centered is still important because this conversation exists because mm -hmm. of women and what has historically happened to women. So no, I, we, we have had similar discussions. And so I get, I'm very anxious then to also hear what new term or idea you guys come up with. Yeah. And I think that whatever we come up with, it won't be eliminating the concept of women mm -hmm. in the work that we do, but also just trying to be more inclusive of trans men and recognizing that the messaging of our title also is particularly important. Yes, agreed. Okay, so shared decision-making is a medical buzzword right now. Could you explain this term in more detail and how it relates to contraceptive counseling for our listeners? Great. Thank you for recognizing that it is a medical buzzword. That is definitely a point of frustration for me in that sure, people often think about it, even in the medical education world and people that I've interacted with, people think of shared decision-making as synonymous with patient-centered care and just synonymous with general quality decision-making. And the reality is that shared decision-making is a specific approach to counseling that is best applied to decisions that are considered preference-sensitive decisions. So preference-sensitive decisions are decisions in which the healthcare provider doesn't have a agenda, doesn't have a perspective or a pr uh, outcome that they would prioritize over other ones. Now, I just want to acknowledge the fact that there are people who I think very legitimately make the case that that actually should be true of all medical decisions, like physicians and other healthcare providers should never have an agenda that's separate from people's own preferences, values, and priorities. And I applaud that patient-centered perspective. However, I also think that in the reality, when you're faced with someone who's smoking, we do have an agenda, and I think that it is naive to feel like we can completely put that aside because if the patient is smoking because that aligns with their values and preferences, we still don't wish that they didn't smoke. So that is an example. Nicotine and tobacco addiction is an example of a non-preference-sensitive decision in which healthcare providers will have a perspective that they will want to engage with patients on and help patients to potentially be able to stop the behavior that we consider unhealthy. That said, providers can do that in a patient-centered way. And that was, in fact, the whole way that motivational interviewing was developed, was to find a patient-centered way that providers can have an agenda to get patients past their addictions or find their own internal motivations to overcome addictions, and, but do it in a way that had an agenda but was also engaging with patients' values and preferences. So motivational interviewing is a patient-centered approach to directive counseling when patients have an agenda. In contrast, shared decision-making is a patient-centered approach to counseling when providers do not have an agenda, when it's a preference-sensitive decision, when providers can honestly say there's clinical equal poise and provide patients sh should be supported to make a decision that is best aligned with their preferences. So, Examples of, of preference-sensitive decisions that are often talked about is treatment for early-stage breast cancer or treatment for prostate cancer. The cases in which we don't have a clear sense of most patients should do this unless there is a strong reason not to, 
It's really balancing different risks and benefits and different outcomes that will mean different things to different people in the context of their lives. So similarly, the contraceptive choice is a preference-sensitive decision in that people have very strong feelings about how different aspects of method use relate to their lives, whether or not they want a method that they can control, whether or not it'll keep their periods regular, whether or not it'll make their periods lighter, whether or not they have to remember something every day. All of those things will affect how people think about the best choice for them for a contraceptive method in the context of their lives, which is why I am an advocate for applying shared decision-making in the context of contraception, that our goal should be to support people to think about what their preferences are for method characteristics and map those preferences onto the available method choice and then make the, the best possible choice for them at that time, at that moment in their reproductive lives, recognizing that it could change today, tomorrow, a year, 10 years from now, and be able to try that method and see if it does in fact work for them. Yeah, and I had not heard that kind of differentiation between motivational and human viewing and shared decision-making, and that was really interesting, enlightening. The other thing that I often do at this point when I'm talking about contraception as a preference-sensitive decision is I problematize unintended pregnancy further as an outcome. So one of the things that many that I hear many times from providers when I'm talking about this is that they feel uncomfortable with the concept of contraception as a preference-sensitive decision because isn't the goal to prevent unintended pregnancy, just like the goal of counseling about smoking is to prevent stroke and heart disease, isn't the goal of contraception to prevent unintended pregnancy, so don't we have an agenda to promote the most highly effective method? because they're the best at preventing unintended pregnancy. And my response to that is that an unintended pregnancy is not a stroke. Unintended pregnancy, as opposed to strokes, mean different things to different people. Not all unintended pregnancies are created equal. For some women, an unintended pregnancy would be a happy accident. And for other women, it would be the end of the world. And how they're going to weigh efficacy of a method as compared to their other preferences is going to depend on how important it is to avoid an unintended pregnancy. So we need to recognize this diversity of perspectives around unintended pregnancy when we're providing counseling. And just to be clear, this perspective on unintended pregnancy not being the same as a stroke is backed up by a lot of research that's been done over the years, including recent qualitative work that has really documented that, for example, some women specifically say they don't want an IUD or an implant because they want the surprise element of when they're going to get pregnant or because they really don't want something in their body and they would be okay with getting pregnant. They, they accept the risk, the 10%, 8%, whatever it is risk of using a tier two method, you know, a moderately effective method, because that's worth it for them because they don't want something that a provider has control over in terms of when it's removed from their bodies. So this obviously takes place in the context of a complex historical and societal context around contraception and family planning in which family planning providers have participated in coercion around contraception to prevent the reproduction of specific subgroups of society. And so Unintended pregnancy means different things to different people, and that is even more important to recognize than, say, the importance of diversity around different outcomes in prostate cancer treatment because we're talking about reproduction, because we're talking about something so fundamentally personal and something that in which the autonomy of individuals and particularly the individuals that are disadvantaged in our society in which their autonomy has been impinged upon in the past. So then... When a woman comes to you and says, okay, I'd like to be on birth control, could you maybe talk about then how do you put that into practice? Like what questions are you asking? How does that conversation take place for you then? Yes. So that is the million dollar question because shared decision-making requires skill at responding to patients, being flexible, recognizing preferences. So there's no one script that you can use. So that often makes people anxious. It's a lot easier to have a script. These are the methods we talk about. This is the, the order in which we talk about them. This is what we emphasize. 
So that said, there is a general structure that I talk about in terms of how to think about a shared decision-making process with patients around contraception. And so the first question is to ask patients, do you have a sense of what's important to you about your method? This is most importantly a framing question because you are asking patients to think about what's important to them as opposed to asking them, what method do you want? Because that is the question they have heard every time they have come in for a contraceptive counseling visit. And what we know from our qualitative work is that in general, women feel like they have to know what they want when they walk in the door, that there's an expectation, and that if providers want them to know something, providers will volunteer it, but that they shouldn't ask questions. So by instead asking what's important to you about your method, you are opening the conversation as opposed to foreclosing it about a specific method. In addition, you are centering it on women's preferences explicitly. You're not just opening the conversation, you're opening the conversation to be about what women themselves want. And many women won't have an answer to that question because they haven't ever been asked it before. Because <laughs> no one said to them, do you care if a method has this characteristics or another characteristics? They've mostly either asked what method they want or they've been given a host of options and then asked to select, right? So by framing the question is, do you have a sense of what's important to you about your method? You're opening the conversation, you're centering it on women's preferences. And by saying, do you have a sense? You're not implying that they should have a sense. You're actually just asking them if they do and allowing them to say, no, they don't have a sense. And then you can move into the more deeper conversation of helping them to verbalize, to understand and verbalize those preferences. So you start with, do you have a sense of what's important to you? And then you can move into a process of eliciting informed preferences for method characteristics. So what I mean by that is that instead of saying, well, let me tell you about the IUD, two minutes, three minutes, five minutes, however on that, let me tell you about the implant, same, ring, that same, patch, same. Instead, what you do is say, there are different ways that methods vary. They vary on how effective they are at preventing pregnancy. They vary on the effect of your period. They vary on how often you take them. They vary on how you take them. I wanna talk about those different ways that methods vary and see how you feel about that. So for example, how do you feel about your period? Is it important to you that it's regular? So you kind of go through that piece. Then you'd say methods vary on effectiveness. They vary, for example, on um, some methods are less than one in 100 women get pregnant in a year, and other methods can be 20 in 100 women get pregnant in a year. It's very important to use concrete numbers and natural frequencies, not percentages when you're doing this, because that's best practices for risk communication. Is that something that's really important to you? And then doing the same with the other method characteristics. And the important piece about this is that you're not mapping it on a specific method. You're not saying the IUD is 1% and condoms are less than that. You are saying, or you know, the ring is eight in 100 women get pregnant in a year. You are allowing women to think about their preferences without the kind of knee-jerk reactions they might have about specific methods. So, for example, people might have a perception coming in, misconceptions about the IUD and implant, that they know they don't want it. And if you said the IUD and implant are the most effective methods, they'd be like, well, I don't want those. But if instead you say there are some methods that are less than one in 100 women get pregnant in a year, is that important to you? And she can say, oh, that's super important to me. And you can identify that effectiveness is a priority for her without having it been colored by how she feels about the specific methods. So then once you parse out her preferences and what's most important to her, you can then map her preferences onto the available methods and she can think about it more objectively in terms of what method is in fact a good fit for her preferences. I developed a job aid along with the, one of the national training centers for Title 10 a couple of years ago that you can find on the FPNTC org website that is a job aid that's designed to allow providers to show the different characteristics map onto different methods so that women and patients can see visually how their preferences relate to each other and then can kind of weigh those um, both rationally and intuitively to pick the best method that's a fit for them. And what providers are doing in that moment is providing support for decision-making, giving women information that they need, such as saying, you told me that effectiveness is the most important method for you. These are the methods that are most effective, but you also told me you really want something that will positively impact your acne. These are the methods that do that. How do you feel about how those things relate to each other? What other information would be helpful for you? Awesome. Could you, just going into that a little bit more detail, could you talk about 
contraindications then? So how providers can then map any types of contraindications that a patient may have? Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, most patients that we see in general family planning and primary care clinics don't have significant contraindications to methods. We've definitely decreased the limitations on method use over time, including with the most recent 2016 MEC. But I think that there are certain questions that it's good to, to establish upfront. You want to know if patients have chronic medical conditions. You want to know if patients have history of migraines with aura. And you want to know if patients have a history of DVT. You know, if they're over 35, you want to know if they smoke. But other than that, it's pretty unlikely that they're going to have a significant contraindication. So, yeah, it's important to get those things up front so you can help people know when you're talking to them about their method possibilities, that you're not talking to them about something, getting them excited about something they can't safely use. But usually that's not a huge barrier. Yeah. So one of the reasons I asked that is we... Nicole and I are on some healthcare provider Facebook groups, but I have just noticed that some providers have some misconceptions about certain methods. So the other day I saw a thing about how emergency contraception increased risk of PE and DVT. So as a result, I think some of these providers are acting as a barrier to their patients, maybe preferred method. So in your work, have you encountered some of these misconceptions that healthcare providers have about contraception? And, it, and it, could you talk about some of those misconceptions? Yeah, I think that there are many and myriad misconceptions people have. And particularly, I think most of the time, as with the example you give, it relates to limiting the methods that people can use because of perceived risk when in fact it is not true. I mean, obviously, IUDs are the most notorious example of that, in which there's been good documentation, including by my colleague Cynthia Harper here at UCSF, that providers think that nulliparous women shouldn't have IUDs or that they increase the risk of PIV, all of which are untrue. So I think that we definitely know that with those methods, it's a problem. I would also argue that the black box for depo and the kind of two-year warning, which is completely not backed up by the research on actual risk of fracture associated with long-term depo use. That's an, another one that has obviously been fueled by the regulatory agencies. I think providers have a big bias against the patch, which I think because, again, related to a black box warning, I think there probably is an increased, a small increased risk of DVT with the patch compared to pills. But it's also, we know that when it first came out, before there was the backlash, it was a very popular method, particularly among women of color. So I think that providers in, in research I've done, um, doing audio recordings of contraceptive counseling visits, we've seen a lot of dissuading of patients from using the patch. The patients even come in wanting the patch. Providers try to kind of talk them out of it because there's this fear. So I think those are the ones that come to mind. And I think we obviously have a lot of work to do in terms of optimizing family planning care in general, including around these technical issues of putting up barriers that are unnecessary to people having the full range of method options available to them. And one of the ways that I've addressed that is developing a contraceptive decision support tool that is designed to be used by patients before their visit because it's very hard to change providers and we should absolutely be working on that, doing good CME, having them listen to wonderful podcasts, whatever it is, we should definitely be working on that. But also we should be getting the information directly to women about what methods are possible for them to use so they can walk in and advocate for themselves. So do you have any specific resources where healthcare providers can learn more about the evidence on prescribing certain contraceptives? Absolutely. Every provider who has a smartphone, which I have to imagine is most providers, should download the CDC's app on medical eligibility criteria and the SPR. So if you just get into either app store and look for CDC contraception, it'll come up and it is one of the most user-friendly app and it goes through exactly what medical conditions are considered risky with different kinds of methods, rates it on a one, two, three, and four scale, with one being no restrictions, two being there's some issues, but we're not really concerned, three being think hard before you prescribe this method, and four being don't prescribe this method to this patient. And it backs this up with both in the app, it has some data that's embedded, but also there are systematic reviews that the CDC has 
published that you can find that backs up their rankings so that people who are really interested in getting more data can go and look for that. And one of the things that they did in their most recent round in 2016 was that they added a bunch of medical conditions for which there weren't contraindications, but which they felt like it was important to document there weren't contraindications. So the things that people were worried about, they would go to the MEC, the medical eligibility criteria, wouldn't see it. So would think that meant that, that there wasn't data on safety. So instead, what they did is they put that in and gave them all ones so that providers who are interested can go and look and feel reassured that, in fact, there's no concern. Great. If I could backtrack a little bit to some of your research that you've done. So you have published a lot of manuscripts in which you or your co-authors discuss quality family planning. Could you define what quality family planning is? Yes, that is the very important question. So I think first and foremost, I think it's really important to define quality family planning from the perspective of people who are receiving the care, right? So that's just a big picture frame. So the Institute of Medicine has their framework on quality from the Crossing the Quality Chasm report from 2001 or 2002 and has the core dimensions of quality, which include access, coordination, patient-centeredness, is one of their core dimensions of quality care. So, and I think as I, the case I made before, where I think patient-centeredness is particularly important in the context of contraception because of the personal intimate context and this historical and social context of stratified reproduction in which some people's fertility has been systematically devalued and other people's fertility is valued. I think because of that context, it is particularly important that we lift up patient-centeredness when we're talking about quality in the context of family planning care. And we think about the ethical implications of quality as it relates to reproductive autonomy. Of course, there are ethical issues in all aspects of medical care, but I think particularly in the context of family planning care, it is stakes are even higher. And because of its personal and its contextual nature, and when I've thought about this, I've done a lot of thinking about this, again, with my team, about can we really say that contraception is a unique aspect of care delivery? And are there other things that are kind of similar? And what we came up with was that the process of the, the end of life care is, in fact, the closest analogy we can come up with, with just how fundamentally personal and intrinsic to the human experience it is in the same way that reproduction is intrinsic to the human experience. So to get back to the core question, what is quality family planning? Clearly, I think patient-centeredness just has to be at the core of all these discussions, centering the experiences and needs of people. So I think access to all methods, that's clearly necessary, along with the Institute of Medicine framework. We need to have high-quality, facilitated access, if not same day, if not on-site, with good referrals and good care coordination. We need the experience to be positive and focused on the needs of the individuals and inclusive of the diversity of perspectives and the diversity of needs. For example, trans men, when they come in the door, we need to think of quality from the perspectives of those who are least likely to experience the care that they need. And then we need, and I think, clearly think shared decision-making is an important way to get at that. I also think we need to be thinking about the role of unconscious and conscious bias in the provision of healthcare in the clinical setting and how we can work to, you know, we're never going to eliminate bias, at least not in my lifetime, but how we can minimize its impact on the care of patients by encouraging providers to acknowledge the role of bias. Healthcare providers are human. There's no way around the fact that people are biased and use stereotypes to organize the world around them. So how can we get healthcare providers to not become defensive when they're faced with that reality, but instead think about it, process it, and then use that knowledge to understand when their biases are being triggered and limit the impact on the care they're providing. The other aspect that we're increasingly thinking is important in quality family planning care is follow-up support. So recognizing the goal is not when the patient walks out of the room. The goal is getting patients in the door in a way that makes them feel respected and cared for, treating them with care and respect when they're in the clinic, and then making it clear that when they leave, it's not that we think discontinuation is a failure, that they can come back, ask questions, get support, method switch, that all of that is part of quality family planning services. And then the last thing I would say is also recognizing that informed by a reproductive justice perspective, family planning should not be siloed. 
family planning is part of the trajectory of women's reproductive lives, which includes wanting to get pregnant, having the birth experiences that are supported and, and treated with respect that they want, having the abortion care that they need and want when they need it. So thinking of family planning as part of this spectrum of family planning and reproductive life experiences, not just an end in and of itself. And I was just going to say that for our listeners that we do have, if this is their first podcast or haven't listened to our first ones, we have an amazing episode on unconscious bias, which I believe is episode two. And then episode three is all about reproductive justice from a healthcare standpoint. And then I want to say episode seven with Tony Bond Leonard is about reproductive justice from a grassroots perspective. So those would all complement this podcast as well. Great. Some of your research, you talk about certain disparities and how clinicians provide contraception counseling. Can you discuss what your research suggests related to this issue? Yes, absolutely. I've done work on this, but so have a few other people. I want to acknowledge, for example, my colleague Andrea Jackson, who's here at UCSF, who's done some important work, and others that have done work over the years to begin this conversation. So, What we know from surveys of women is that women of color particularly report experiencing discrimination or are more likely to report feeling pressured to use methods than are white women. So for example, one study published a couple years ago in the American Journal of Public Health found that in the context of prenatal care, women of uh, Latina women and, and black women were more likely to report being pressured to use a contraceptive method and to limit their family size during the prenatal care itself than were the white women when all other things were controlled for. Mm -hmm. A study from the 1980s that used standardized patients, kind of just little scenarios written out on paper and presented them to providers in a randomized fashion, found that providers were more likely to sterilize women of color than they were to sterilize white women which speaks to the fact that it's not just women's perceptions that this is happening, but providers, in fact, are express this bias when when they're asked direct questions. And when I was a family planning fellow, I was interested. It was kind of right at the beginning of the IUD hysteria that our field was experiencing. So I was interested to know how this same phenomenon might bear out in the context of IUD counseling. So I did a randomized trial using standardized patient videos varying by race, ethnicity. And I went to meetings at, of the American College of OBGYN, their national meeting, and the American Academy of Family Physicians. We set up a booth right next to various pharmaceutical companies, like the Mucinex people were next to me at one, one meeting, and had providers watch videos and then answer surveys about what they would recommend to that patient from an, a contraceptive perspective. And we found that providers were about Um, 20% more likely to recommend IUDs and implants to Latina and Black women than they were to white women when everything else about the patients was completely standardized. So what we know is that women experience differential counseling that reflects this context of stratified reproduction where people, certain people's reproduction is devalued and therefore counseling towards like highly effective pregnancy prevention methods is more likely. And then we also know from these standardized video and scenario experiments that, in fact, this bias is actually operating and that we've documented it objectively. And Andrea Jackson, who I mentioned recently, we have a paper under review where she actually then tried to dig into a little bit in terms of the nature of this, what's going on under the hood, so to speak, of why providers might be doing this differential counseling and differential recommendations. And she used a standardized tool that's been validated for provider trust in patient. And she did find that in the family planning context, providers were more likely to express distrust of their Black patients than they were of their white patients, when, even when controlling for everything else. Wow. It's a problem, for sure. But I will also say, and it sounds like you've talked about this a little bit, this is consistent with literature mm-hmm. across the spectrum of healthcare, right? It's right. that... We know that patients of color get lower quality care, both interpersonally and technically, and that this is obviously also in the context of mistrust of the healthcare systems because of the historical context in which communities of color have been treated badly by the healthcare system. And so you've got this mistrust combined with lower quality care that in general feeds into a dysfunctional dynamic that limits the ability of communities of color to get the care that they need. 
the quality care that they need. And then in family planning, you have this layered on context in which it's about reproduction and it's about in which reproduction is societally stratified and valued. And so it even becomes more problematic. So I think the question I'd like to ask then, since we're talking about your research, is that your name has been brought up several times by our guests in regards to your research. And we know that this is a really big question, but given this platform that is our free podcast, and given your body of research and experience, what do you wish providers would do or knew? Wow, that is a big question. So I think that it's essential that providers be willing to engage with these concepts that we're all talking about. And it sounds like you have engaged with a lot in your series. Engage with that with it without feeling defensive, right? I've had many conversations with valued colleagues who are really challenged by the idea that, for example, promoting LARC IUDs and implants, when I present that as problematic, it's a very big an identity question for them. Like they really believe that they are, they've been doing this for a while and they really believe they're doing the right thing for their patients and they're doing it from a good place, right? They are healthcare providers who have gone into it for the right reasons and care deeply about their patients. And so when I talk about this and when others like me talk about this, it can be really challenging. And then of course, the unconscious bias piece also really elicits a defensiveness, either consciously or unconsciously because no one wants to believe that they're biased, right? And especially healthcare providers. So I think that what I would want people to know and think about is to know that we're all trying to figure it out together, right? Like this is a process where I think the context of family planning and how we understand family planning care is in constant evolution and that we need to be moving and changing how we think about the care that's being provided. And that you know, when I start, first started training and I was involved in the LARC hysteria, I can certainly remember feeling like I was doing the right thing by counseling patients towards IUDs and being what I would consider a LARC promoter. So I think we really need to work on not being defensive and instead recognizing that everybody is trying to do the right thing. And we just need to be thoughtful and engaged as a community and really moving the conversation forward. And I think that we all have things to learn about how to provide better quality care. I certainly do. And so I think that we have to be, as a field, continuing to think about how to do a better job of meeting patients' needs in this deeply contextualized context of care that we work as family planning providers. Did that make sense? Yeah, totally. Yeah, I mean, I think that's why we exist, that we know that there's providers out there that want to do what's best. And we're hoping at least that this podcast gives them a little bit of ways to learn how to improve that even though they are trying their best, there's always room for improvement. <laughs> so just going off of from there, then we always ask our guests, what are the most important communication tips for our listeners? And you may have already hit on a lot of that, but for you, what would you recommend for providers when communicating with their patients about contraception? Yeah, so I think that the most important thing, and this sounds incredibly trite and obvious, is the positive interpersonal relationship with patients, the emotional intelligence of establishing a connection. And we, as I referenced earlier, did a audio recording study where we audio recorded 342 contraceptive counseling visits, and we coded them using something called the Four Habits Coding Scheme, which is a validated scheme for patient-centered communication that was developed by Kaiser and is still used as their like training model for, for Kaiser clinicians. And what we found in that study was that habit one, which is in quote-unquote investing in the beginning was the most highly correlated with other aspects of patient experience and interestingly with contraceptive continuation at six months. So this investing in the beginning is making small talk, reading warmly, asking open-ended questions. It's a, it's a multi-item scale. And what we also found is that we were working with providers in the Bay Area who many of which I know and consider colleagues and are wonderfully invested providers, like I said. But we also saw that there was very inconsistent use of those types of really basic communication strategies. So providers would rush in, not greet the patient by name, go straight for the chart, right? And that's just a reality of what we do in clinical practice. We're constantly rushed. We're constantly 
harried. We're constantly feeling like we've made this patient wait. We need to get right to the point. And the reality is that this moment, this moment where you sit down, look the patient in the eye, acknowledge their humanity, acknowledge you're there for them and say, how are you? That is a therapeutic intervention. So I talk about put your hand on the door, taking a moment and taking a deep breath because just separating that next minute from everything else you've been doing in the day and making it about the patient because it's the beginning is where you set the tone for everything and where you set the tone for this communication process of shared decision-making that I talked about. Once patients feel like they have been acknowledged as a human, they are going to respond to you about what their preferences are for contraception in a completely different way than they would if you hadn't established that connection. I really like that. I think it goes well with what some of our other guests have said too, specifically I'm thinking of unconscious bias, like leaving your assumptions at the door. So I think that moment before you even walk in, like you said, is really important to all providers to sort of gather yourself and also release whatever stress or biases or assumptions that we have. Exactly. And thank you for bringing back to the bias piece, because I absolutely agree. Thinking about what are your potential triggers with this patient and how am I going to manage them? So we heard from several women who wanted sterilization procedures in their early to mid-20s and complained that they had several gynecologists refuse to do the procedure. What are your thoughts about these barriers women have encountered? That's such a great question, and it's definitely something that I've had come up, for example, in my patient stakeholder groups that I have for, as part of my research program and have seen documented in the literature as well. So, you know, obviously sterilization is an incredibly complex aspect of the family planning care delivery system. And we know that there has been a long sorted history of coercive and non-consensual sterilization that happened throughout the 1900s, for example, and throughout the country with California actually being a particularly bad actor in that area. And this was targeting women of color and low-income women or um, women whose reproduction was in generally considered undesirable. And we know that even in this decade in the California penal system, there were 150 women that were coercively sterilized. And we know that sterilization is generally irreversible. So this is not something to take lightly. And this is what led to like the 30-day Medicaid waiting period where you can't get public funding for sterilization unless someone signs the form 30 days before, you know, with complicated caveats around date of deliver, expected date of delivery, et cetera, which was designed to prevent this kind of like rolling patients back right after they had the baby and having them sign the consent form on the way, which was a common form of abuse. So then also now is manifested in that many providers want to protect patients from making a decision they consider to be ill-advised to be sterilized in their 20s. There's this idea that we need to prevent women from both being coercively sterilized and we need to protect women from making a decision that they will regret later by getting sterilized in their 20s. And this is often driven by one study that dichotomized at 25 and up and 25 and less and found that women were more likely to experience sterilization regret if they were less than 25. So that's a common number that people use is 25. So I'll just big picture say that I think we as providers need to think really carefully about whether our job is to take care of people and help them have get the care that they need and make the best decisions they can for themselves, or if our job is to protect patients from any possibility of regret. And patients are gonna make decisions all the time that they might regret, right? In their lives, in their healthcare, and we can't control that, and we shouldn't control that, right? The reality is that people do not lose their ability to make decisions that might not turn out well when they walk in the door for their visit. And I, we know, as you said, we've documented that it is not at all uncommon for women to feel that their autonomy has been impinged upon by having a sterilization denied because providers are trying to protect patients from regret. And obviously, when you frame it that way, it's a really paternalistic perspective. So I feel strongly that we need to do a better job of supporting patients' decision-making around sterilization. The Medicaid, for example, the Medicaid consent form is ridiculous and does not accomplish the goal of informed consent that it purports to do. But we also need to reframe the decision-making and the role of providers in sterilization decision-making from protecting patients to enabling patients. 
And I'm part of a study right now that's the NIH funded with the principal investigator, Sonia Barrero from Pittsburgh, where we are working to develop a sterilization decision aid, which is exactly designed to get at this point, which is to get at standardized counseling that helps women think about the possibility of regret in the context of their lives and then make their own decisions. And that will give providers the confidence that patients have gotten the, the support that they need so that they can feel more comfortable honoring patients' autonomy rather than impinging upon it. That's another person that Stephanie idolizes. <laughs> she is amazing. I am submitting a paper with her and Lisa Caligari. So. Yeah, great. It's going to be full circle with my... <laughs> yeah, it's like all your nerd dreams are coming true. Exactly. <laughs> okay, well, seriously, though, I think we could talk to you and pick your brain about this all day, which obviously we don't have the luxury of doing. So with that being said, before we wrap up here, where can providers go to learn more or get training on how to provide woman-centered contraception counseling? So the Family Planning National Training Center website that I mentioned earlier, fpntc.org, has a number of modules that people can use, including some e-modules that I help work with them on to provide some interactive exercises to think about how to, to accomplish this. And so that's free. It's federally funded. Anybody can go. They don't have to be a Title X provider. They also have a clinic level training package where you can download materials that you can use in a small group setting to talk about how to provide patient-centered contraceptive counseling. And then I also personally really like the CAI, Chicatelli Associates. They have a good online module as well as part of their program. And you can, I think you find that at CAI.org. So those are some great resources. And I think that if this is an ongoing conversation, I think there'll be more resources available over time. Of course, also I encourage people to look at the quality and family planning guidelines put out by the CDC and the Office of Population Affairs. They unfortunately are a little bit out of date right now. For example, they talk about shared effectiveness counseling, but in general, as a big picture sweep of kind of, of quality and family planning, including connecting family planning to, for example, infertility services, it's a good reference document. So Nicole and I would both like to thank you so much for your time today and for your ongoing commitment to advancing sexual and reproductive health through your communication and your research. Do you have any last thoughts that you would like to add before we end? Um, no, I think I just want to say thank you to you both for doing this. I think having the conversations you've been having with really amazing people and documenting these conversations that we're having as a field in one set of resources is really powerful. So I really appreciate you doing this work. Thank you. Thank you. And as always, we hope that you enjoyed another episode of the Woman-Centered Health Podcast. We are always looking for new supporters, sponsors, and guests. So if you'd like to be on our show or know someone who you think would be perfect, let us know. You can find more information on how to support us and contact us on our website at www.womancenteredhealth.com.